Genesis 31, 17 through 55. So we've been following the story of Jacob. And he did not have a great beginning to his story. He had to flee his home in Canaan to Haran when he deceived his father and his brother to steal the birthright and the promise. His brother was prepared to take his life after their father died. And so he was sent away to the region was called Padan Aram. The city was Haran. And that's where he met Laban. And Laban was Rebekah's brother. He was a rascal. He was a thief. He was a cheat. He was a sneak. And that's where Jacob married his two wives and then later took his two concubines as well. And we've been looking at this grand story as, as a picture of when we're confronted with our own sin and our own, we've been saying, the worst version of ourselves. Jacob's name, remember, means heel catcher, the guy that's going to trip you up when you get to the finish line. He's going to grab your shoelace and pull you so that you fall. Cheat, liar, sneak, it, it has all those connotations. And that's how he lived his life in Canaan. And one time he took it too far and he had to flee into the wilderness where he met the Lord. Good thing to do before you go and meet somebody like Laban. And then when he gets there, we've been seeing that Laban, in a way, is a picture of who Jacob could become. Like the worst version of Jacob. The consummate liar. The consummate cheat. And it's a, it's a picture for us. Obviously, it's a true story, but there's a lot of great symbolism here where when you do something that shocks you, you're almost thrown into upheaval and you're, you have to face to face with who you are and what you're doing. And what is that attitude that I've been letting grow up in my life? Or what is this weird sin that I haven't dealt with? And sometimes God will bring you to a place where you catch a glimpse of what's going on. When you're somebody like Jonah who realizes that you're, you are bound up in your own prejudice and your own selfishness, Jonah. Well, that's who Jacob met. And it's, it's been a long, hard story and we've been very frustrated with Laban as we've gone through it. And finally tonight, Jacob's going to leave. He's, he's made the decision last week to abandon that part of himself. So he's going to leave Laban, but using our, our metaphor that we're using, he's going to decide, I'm not going to live like this anymore. I'm not going to be the liar, the cheat, the sneak, the thief. And he's going to leave. And Laban is going to pursue Jacob. He's not going to let him get away. That's how sin works, right? Sin doesn't let you get away easily. Doesn't shake hands and say, all right, well, best of luck. And there's another thing that we're going to look at tonight. Very often, we think of moral or spiritual transformation as internal. But very, very often, it manifests itself in your life. So Jacob needed to overcome being a liar, a sneak, and a cheat. But what that looked like for him meant, I've got to get away from Laban. Because living with Laban was pushing him into these situations where he either had to be sneaky or he had to get taken advantage of. And neither one of them was a good thing. It's same thing is true in our lives where God is trying to work something out in you. And the decision to make that change will manifest itself through a person or through a situation that you're in. And that thing, even though it, it maybe doesn't feel spiritual, like this point of decision is going to be what God will use to work that change in you. And it's one thing to decide mentally and, and spiritually, I don't want to do this. It's another thing when you're faced with somebody like Laban and you've got to make the decision. And I, I'm very excited to get into this study. It was so encouraging for me because what we see is that sin, the Laban of your life, has no authority over you. God's going to tell Laban, you touch that guy, 
you're going to have me to deal with. And so it's going to be a big, scary, intimidating situation where Laban and Jacob face off, but we know the whole time Jacob's going to be fine. The Lord is going to complete the work that he began, and he wants you to stop putting up with sin in your life. There comes a point, y'all maybe have gotten there, where you don't enjoy your bad attitudes and your sin and this or that anymore. It's just there, and it won't let you go. Like, I've been wanting to be done with this for years, and it won't get off me. Well, the Lord wants to come to you tonight and say, stop letting them have a place in your life. Stop letting that sin, that person, that situation, whatever it is, stop letting it own you because it doesn't own you. God is on your team. And if you know God, it's only a matter of time until he brings you to victory over these things. Jacob had to learn his lesson, but he did. And when he was finally ready to make the decision, God was right there to support him on his way out. So this is all about chasing the freedom that God is going to give to us, drawing a line in the sand with the flesh, the world, and the devil. And I hope it's exhortive for you because it was for me, and it's got me all revved up. So let's read it, verses 17 through 21. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. Now remember last time, Jacob called a secret family meeting. He called his two wives, Rachel and Leah, and he said, listen, this is not working out. We've got to go. Your dad keeps changing my wages. He's never going to let us go. He's been abusing me and, and taking advantage of me, and it's time for us to go home. And remember, both of Laban's daughters said, fine with me. Dad stinks. <laughs> Dad's not been good to us. He, he's not saving anything for us, and he's treating us like strangers. Yeah, let's get out of here. Well, now they leave. Finally, Jacob is leaving, as God promised he would back in chapter 28, full of wealth, with a big old family, just like God promised, just like later Israel will leave Egypt, and it says that they plundered the Egyptians. God's like, I'm going to give you wages for 400 years of unpaid slave labor. Now remember, they were in the fields, so they're not in the city. He's out there herding sheep. And Laban is off shearing his sheep, which is why Jacob called his meeting at this time, because Laban's not around. Sheep shearing was a big deal. If you were obviously a shepherd and you owned flocks and herds, when it's time to shear the sheep, around April or May, it was a big deal. It was a celebration because now we're finally going to get paid for all this work that we've been doing. Remember in 1 Samuel 25, David has been watching over Nabal's sheep. Nabal and Abigail was his wife. And he said, hey, shearing is around and you know, we've been watching your sheep and kind of being security and we've never gotten paid, but we would like a few things just to celebrate the sheep shearing. And that turned into a whole big kerfuffle. But the point to, to note is that sheep shearing was a big deal. It was a celebratory time. So Laban is off doing that. Jacob is over here. It is interesting he was not invited to the sheep shearing. You kind of see where maybe it was the last straw for Jacob. I don't know. But they're able to leave unnoticed because of this. And it says that Jacob tricked him in the ESV. Literally in Hebrew, it says he stole the heart of Laban. That was the metaphor they used for tricking somebody. We would say like he put one over on him. He stole his heart, tricked Laban. So Laban's been spending his whole life tricking Jacob and now Jacob's going to have the last laugh, so to speak. Note here it says, Rachel stole her father's household gods. We're just going to mention that. We'll come back to it. 
Jacob had seen how he could end up if he kept on living the way he was living. If I'm going to define myself as the one that swindles my brother out of his birthright when he's hungry and tricks my father to get the blessing by putting on goat skins, I'm going to end up like this guy, like Laban. And he says, all right, we're not doing that. I'm not going to be Yaakov. I'm not going to be the heel catcher. So he decides, okay, we're, we're going back. We're leaving that. We're renouncing that. He had tried living that way, and he had to leave his own family. Then he tried living that way with Laban. He tried to be the dirty, sneaky thief with Laban, but Laban was dirtier, sneakier, and thiefier than he was. And the only way he was going to ever succeed against Laban was by becoming more like him. That's what the battle with the flesh is like. You try to fight on the devil's terms, you become more like him, which is not the solution. So he says, all right, it's time to go. He had tried to cohabitate. You know, we'll both be here. You leave me alone. I'll leave you alone. Didn't work. Tried to negotiate with him. Didn't work. And this is how the Bible tells us to deal with sin. Colossians 3 verse 5 says, put to death what is earthly in you. Jesus said in Matthew 5, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18 says, flee sexual immorality. These are very... Strong terms, aren't they? Remember Joseph? Joseph was taking care of Potiphar's house, and Potiphar's wife thought he was cute, and she kept on trying to seduce him, and Joseph, it said, kept on finding ways to not be in the house alone with her until finally she set it all up, and she's got him cornered, and she demands that he lie with her, and it says that Joseph ran, and it says that his garment ripped off in her hands, which means she wasn't just telling him. She had him by the, by the coat, and he just took off running. Because that's how we handle sin. Get out of there. Sometimes there is nothing else to be done. I can handle it. No, you can't. You can't handle going to that party. You know exactly what's going to happen over there. Well, she just wants to talk. No, she doesn't. No, she doesn't. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23 and 24, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Losing your life for Christ. Saying goodbye to living this way. And saying hello to the way God has for you. Which is always better anyway. right? You'll save your life if you lose your life. And Jacob's finally going to get out of there. Now I'll bet you this was probably not the first time Jacob had said, You know, one of these days I'm just going to pack up and leave. You ever, you ever work a job that you hate and... Every other day, you're like, one of these days, I'm just going to quit this job. And there's that old man that's been working there for a thousand years. And you know he's not going anywhere, but he just likes talking about how one day he's going to quit this job. Same thing spiritually, guys. It's one thing to know you've got to change. It's another thing to take steps and actually do it, right? We can come to church, have a really heavy meeting. I shouldn't be doing that anymore. You're right. Oh, I'm so sorry, Jesus. You feel better. So you go right back and you do it again. Jacob needed to actually get up and go, which is what he did. You stay in Haran, Laban is going to own you. So you've got to get up and you've got to leave. So they did. Verses 22 through 24. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. And I want to underline verse 24. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. I'm watching you, punk. I know what you're like. Don't, don't go there and try and pull all your tricks this time. God's on his team. So three days later, Laban finds out he's gone, and he, he 
gets the posse to saddle up, and they're going to chase him down. Now, it says they went to the hill country of Gilead, which means Jacob is going a different way than he went when he arrived in Haran. Before, remember, he went through Bethel, which is on the western side of the Jordan River. This time he's in Gilead, which is on the eastern side of the Jordan River, and he's in hill country, which means he's probably trying to lose him. He says, that we're going we're gonna to go the way that he won't suspect, and by the time he finds out where we are, but apparently it didn't work. They're traveling much faster because Jacob is taking all of his flocks and herds, and Laban is probably just saddled up for battle. Gilead was south of Galilee, but not all the way down to uh, where Jerusalem would be, not yet to where Isaac was living. 350 miles from Haran. Now, some people will say they could never have traveled that distance in 10 days. But if they were, remember, in the field, so they're not in the city. You don't keep your sheep there. You keep them out in the fields. So it probably was a manageable distance, and they probably were hustling, too, to get away. Now, Laban is not just here to talk, by the way. Laban is ready to kill Jacob, take his possessions and his family. You must not think that when you are going to make a spiritual change, that it will be easy. You can tell your flesh that you're done, and you've probably done it a thousand times. All right, last time, that was, that was awful. I'm never doing that again. But your flesh, the sinful heart inside of you, the, the drives that you have towards the destructive things of your life, that, that flesh is a bully, is an abuser, and it'll get in your face to assert itself. We see this over and over again in Scripture. We even see it played out in literature sometimes that when they finally decide we're going to leave, they're going to get chased down. When Israel left the land of Egypt, a couple days later, Pharaoh goes, wait a minute. What, what are we going to do now? So they saddled up and they chased after them down to the Red Sea. And you think, you just had ten plagues, Pharaoh. And you really think that you're, you're going to go stop this God this time? And then he shows up and it's a pillar of fire and then there's the water part and he still keeps going. Because that's what your sin is like. Your flesh is insatiable. That's why Jesus tells us, kill it. Tear it apart. Run away from it. Don't try to ignore it because it's coming for you. Satan would rather you be dead than holy. He'd rather rip apart your life than let you make a positive change. Now, the good news is that you have someone on your team and that it's God himself. Satan does not want you to make a change because that means God gets more glory, that it shows that Jesus Christ did die for his sins, that the Holy Spirit is at work, and it's a signal to him that he made the worst decision possible and is headed for hell. So he's going to oppose you, but God's like, I'm right there. Here comes Laban, ready to go, ready to fight, and God comes to him in a dream and says, don't you say anything. I love those first two words, be careful. <laughs> it's nice to know that God is on your team, huh? If you belong to God, you don't work for Laban anymore. Laban's going to show, hey, you come back. And we're like, hold on a second. He, he doesn't have to stay with you. You don't own him. You ever have a friend or a family member or just maybe a neighbor that acted like they owned you? Like, like, you, like you needed their permission for every little thing that you did. And if you do something they didn't like, they're going to come and interrogate you. How dare you? That's what Laban was like. But it's like, I, I don't work for you, Laban. Pharaoh's coming at, after them to bring him back, but Pharaoh just set him free. So you don't have to sin anymore. You don't have to listen to that part of yourself. And you need to hear that. You need to hear this. Romans 6.14 says that sin will have no dominion over you because you are not under law but under grace. So sin swaggers over 
And he's going to tell you now, don't think that you're going to get away from this. This is who you are. Your name is Jacob. Your name is heel catcher, liar, thief. You can run away all you want. It's not going to change a thing. But you don't have to listen to that. Because God is on your team. And God wants you to be holy so much more than Satan wants you to be ruined. And God fights for you and has done everything necessary. You've got to understand that because if you think, as Jacob, we're going to see, Jacob is not going to handle it right at first. If you think that sin or even the people in your life that represent those sins in the flesh in your heart, if you think that those people have some kind of claim on you, you're going to let them walk all over you. And the Lord is sitting here telling him, you back off of my kid. Jacob is mine. I, I have chosen him and you don't get to say anything to him. We have to understand that. By the gospel of Jesus Christ, you've been set free from all that. You're no longer a slave. The Bible says you are a son or daughter of God. Anybody get to tell God's son or daughter what to do? You don't even like when people tell your sons or daughters what to do. When you go to the grocery store and, and somebody's sitting there hollering at your kid for nothing. Very, very nice ladies will get very, very angry really quickly when that happens. And so sin swaggers up and the devil is trying to tempt you or people are going to come and tell you, you can't change. You have to keep going this way. You have to keep cheating at work. You have to keep lying. No, you don't. And how well you understand that will determine your effectiveness as you try to fight against sin. But you have to understand the desperate fight that you are in. Well, let's see how it goes. It doesn't start well, but it's going to end happily. So verse 25. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done? The, just hold on. The nerve of this guy. The nerve of this guy. What have you done? What have you, what has Jacob done? What have you done, Laban? You've tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword. Not really. They were the ones that said, uh, no, we'll go with you. Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? Was he ever going to do that? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. You just want to slap him, don't you? I do. I want to slap him reading this. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Acting like he's doing the right thing. Now, listen, I'm fully within my rights to take you out, pal. But, you know, God and me had a discussion, and I'm not going to push you. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. I get it. You were homesick, right? You're, you're a young man. You're, you're missing mommy and daddy. But why did you steal my gods? Isn't it a bummer when your gods can be stolen? I don't have that problem. So as tough as he sounds, it's all kind of undercut by that last sentence there, isn't it? So there's two camps set up in the hill, and Laban comes out to confront him, and he's got the gall to accuse Jacob. What have you done? This is the guy that tricked his future son-in-law into marrying the wrong daughter after working seven years, and then tricked him into working seven more years to marry the girl that he thought he was supposed to marry. And then gave him wages. Oh, you have every spotted and speckled lamb and every black sheep. And then he took all the black sheep and speckled goats away so that he had nothing. And he changed his wages over and over again and treated him poorly. And his daughter said that he treats us like outsiders. And he shows up, what have you done? Like he's going to shake his finger in his face. Satan always does this. He acts like he's in control of you. 
And like I said, sometimes this can manifest physically in your life, where it's almost as if somebody is, is being the mouthpiece for your flesh. What have you done? Let's use an example. Let's say there's somebody in your life who's been harsh with you or has been manipulative with you and you just can't take it anymore and you're like you know what this isn't right I keep on getting pushed into doing these things that are not righteous and I'm, I'm not being able to live my life out fully I've got to stand up to to her and say something and then you do and maybe you you get a little aggressive when you do it and then she wants to say now you can't talk to me like you're being so aggressive and so angry why, why are you acting like that and it's like you, you're gonna come at me after everything that you've done it's like Satan is gonna come in and try and accuse you Oh, you think you're going to get your life together? Don't you know about these other little sins over here? You know, you, you have a great service at church. And say, Lord, I, I'm going to serve you forever. And then you get in traffic and, you know, somebody almost cuts you off. So you get angry and, and maybe you, you just say, ah, why would you do that? And maybe you curse and Satan goes, how dare you? You think you're so righteous and you're so holy. And you're like, excuse me, you're, you, Mr. Lucifer, fallen from heaven, are going to sit here and accuse me? He has no power over you. Satan's power has been broken. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. How fast does lightning go? So it wasn't like, ah, it was like, God's like, get out of here. Pow. That's your accuser out. And he's going to come and, and try to do that to you. Sin is like an abusive relationship. And that's exactly what Laban was. Sin will try to guilt you into staying defeated. And I'm going to take a little detour here. There's a secondary lesson to be learned here about dealing with people like this. Can we talk about that for a minute? You ever deal with somebody like Laban? Maybe I was reading that story and you're like, oh, this reminds me of fill in the blank. That reminds me of her or him or, oh, I remember I had a boss that was just like this. My mother, her mother was just like this. There's a lesson to be learned here. He, he exhibits three characteristics that I could pull out that somebody who is manipulative, petty, abusive, and I'm not talking about somebody that gets in your face and is going to slap you around. Th those are much more rare than the other kind. The passive-aggressive, tell half a, half a lie, half a truth, twist your arm, go behind your back to get what they want out of you. Maybe you've got a neighbor like this. Maybe you work with somebody like this. You went to school with someone like this. Maybe you're like this, and I'm about to call you out. I don't have anybody in mind, but who knows? Here's number one. Abusers will accuse their victims of wrongdoing when they try to get out from under that abuse. When you are in a relationship that is not good, maybe you've got a girlfriend who has just got you twisted up in knots and her, she knows just when to cry and just when to get loud and you find yourself doing all kinds of things that you don't think are right and you don't want to do and then you try to say, you know what, we're done, we're breaking up and then she comes at you and says, well, you've always been aggressive and manipulative towards me and you're like, what? That's you. That, that's the thing you do. And they use that guilt to keep them under my thumb. Look at what he's saying. You stole my daughters from me. Now listen, we can look at that halfway and say that was kind of a rotten thing to do, Jacob. But it's been 20 years with this guy. It's been 20 years of back and forth and him not treat. He never cared about his daughters before today. He didn't care about his sons before now. But now all of a sudden he's going to come and maybe, maybe Jacob already felt kind of guilty about doing this. He's like, we're going to make our escape and we're going to do some things that I, I don't think this is right, but the best thing to do is to get out of here. And now he comes up and he finds the one point of conscience and wants to put his, his finger in that. Sometimes family will do this to you. Family will try to keep you going in, a, in, a, in the family sin, whatever it is. 
Maybe, you know, we, we as a family, we don't talk about our problems ever. We bottle them up and we don't do that. Maybe your family is, you know, we, we gossip a lot. Maybe we're alcoholics, whatever it is. You try to get out from underneath that, and they're going to come at you and start saying, you're a bad son, you're a bad daughter. You know, I knew she was no good for you, and they're coming at your wife. Or that man is, is taking advantage of you, and that's what abusers do. They accuse their victims of doing something wrong when they try to escape the abuse. We have, in uh, my past ministry, we've helped young women who have been physically abused in their, in their families, and the, the m- mother or father will come into the church and say, she needs to repent because she told the church about sins that were going on in our family, and she should never do that. It's like... What? <laughs> really? Yeah, okay, it's not good to air your dirty laundry at church, but you're going to take something you were doing that was like a level 10 sin, and you're going to bring it down to like maybe 0.5, and that's going to be the point of contention? And one of the hard things to do with counseling is to be able to navigate past that and find the real hard thing that's going on. Number two, abusers will insist that they are kind and benevolent even after a long pattern of behavior proves they are not. What does he say? I would have celebrated. We would have thrown a big old party. You know me, Jacob. That's how I've always liked you. No, you haven't, bro. You you have been harsh to me. You have lied to me. You've cheated me. And this is what abusers do. They say, "I, I, I would have done anything for you. Why didn't you ever just ask? It's like, I did ask like 10 times and you found a way to duck it and dodge it or make me feel bad. You know, you'll have a boss maybe. And you're trying to get ahead, and you're trying to move forward. And they, some people are like, well, you're good where you are, and that makes me look good, so I'm going to keep you down because it makes me look all right. And you try to ask for a promotion or a raise or a transfer, and they always find a way to, you walk in to ask for it, and you come out, and you go, wait a minute, what just happened? And they're really good at that. And so then you find a way to maybe find a different job, or you find somebody else, maybe higher up, who wants to promote you. And they come to me, and they say, like, I would have been happy to do that for you, but I really don't appreciate you going over my head. And now all of a sudden, you feel bad when they're the one that did something wrong. And number three, abusers try to tell you what your motive is. Don't you love it when people do that to you? And they, and they get you all worked up. And in the moments of confusion and passion, that's where they thrive. Because they don't mind hurting your feelings and getting you all worked up as long as they can keep things the way they are. He comes in. What does he say? I know you were homesick. You wanted to go back to your father's house. I get it. You know, he's almost like pandering and patronizing him a little bit. You know, I know you've been gone a long time, and, you know, you miss your mommy. And it's like, that's not why I left. I left because of you. But this is what people will do. They will try to tell you why you did something. And they'll come in and say, oh, I know what this is. You, you've never appreciated me. You've always hated me. You've always been rebellious. Oh, I've heard that one a lot. You've always been rebellious, and this is why you're doing this. And you're trying to say, no, this is because of something going on here. Well, you've always wished that you had a different girlfriend. You always wanted to go after some other guy. No, why are we talking about this? I didn't think about that. But then they can spin this little top, and all of a sudden you're dizzy, and you think, maybe I was thinking that. And you start defending something that is not what you actually think, and now they're winning the argument because you can't defend that because you don't even think that. This is what he's trying to do. They accuse the victim of wrongdoing. They insist they're being kind and benevolent, and they try to tell you what your motive is. Can I tell you this, Christian? Don't ever let anybody tell you why you do something. Now, listen, if you're coming into a a healthy circumstance, like with with a counselor or with someone who's trusted and loved, and you're having some trouble working things out, that's a little different. But when we say things like, Jesus Christ saved my soul, and I love him so much, and no, that's not why. You got saved because you're afraid of death, and you don't have the courage to face the world. No, that's not why I got saved. Yes, it is. That's why you did that. 
Here's one I hear. The only reason your denomination preaches a pre-trib rapture is because you believe that Christians shouldn't have to suffer and you're selfish. That makes me crazy because it's like I've never taught that, thought that, or heard anybody that did. And it's like, don't, don't tell me that. Or they'll say, you won't ordain women because you hate women and you're sexist. Say, no, I, what in the world? I've never even thought that before. Yeah, but I know. You wouldn't do that unless you were this way. Don't let people tell you what your motive is, especially if you disagree. And they come in and say, well, you wouldn't say that. You can't possibly know what your motive is. That's very postmodern, you know. Very postmodern to say, no, you, you can't even know why you do things. But because I know where you came from and how old you are and all the rest of it, I have all the facts about you, therefore I understand everything about you, and you can't know. The author doesn't even know what he meant. I have to break it down later to know what he meant. And people will do that to you. Watch this. This happens in your life. Now listen, this is, this is the section that gets to me. It's hard to know how to handle yourself in moments like that, especially if you're nice. And I am a nice person. And I get in a situation like that, and I've been there before, where people try to push you, push you, push you, push you, and they try to keep the conversation where they want to keep it, and you're sitting there trying to have a rational conversation. They're not interested in that. They're interested in winning the conversation, and you end up angry afterwards. When someone tries to exercise authority over you who is not Jesus Christ, you've got to resist that, Christian. Do you know why? Because Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Therefore, stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And this is not just talking about doctrine now. There can be people that roll in and want to run your life. Sometimes there's a neighbor. Paul called them busybodies. They go from house to house, and they're going to know everything that's going on, and they're going to control what's going on. Some pastors try to do this. Everybody's going to give me every bit of information about them, and I own you, which is not what the example of the Bible gives us. Mothers and fathers will do this. Wives and husbands will do this to each other. Employers will do this to each other. They think nothing of jerking people around to get what they want out of them. And at the end, Laban accuses Jacob of stealing his gods. Now listen, his gods had been stolen. Jacob didn't do it, but Jacob didn't know. And so what is he doing? He's trying to focus on the trivial rather than on the bigger picture. And that's what Satan loves to do. Get you focused on trivial little things rather than the big picture. And so we come in and the immense weight and glory of God's grace and the blood of Jesus Christ. And Satan comes in and says, that doesn't matter because you lost your temper yesterday. Hold on a minute. Isn't, isn't the glory of God greater than something silly and stupid like that? Everybody else might have the opportunity to come to salvation. You don't because of this and that. Well, what makes me so special? You know what you're like. But the thing is, we're all like that. And this is why we've got to learn to fight in the truth of the gospel. Your flesh will do this to you, which is why the Bible tells us, run, cut it off, gouge the eye out, take the hand and throw it into the fire, put to death what is earthly in you, leave Potiphar's wife there holding on to your shirt if you've got to. Don't engage. And Jacob, unfortunately, is going to engage. Let's look at verse 31. He's going to do the wrong thing. Here comes Laban with all his mess, and Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. Jacob falls for Laban's trick here. He's, he's been confronted with all kinds of accusations, 
But there's one thing that stands out, and it's one thing where Jacob thinks he knows that he's in the right, and it's about these little idols. Now, I know that I can prove that this is true, so I'm going to go ahead and, and play the odds here. This was a mistake, because the focus of this conversation should not have been the household idols. The folks of this conversation should have been 20 years of lying and cheating and manipulation and abuse. He should have been focusing on verse 31. No, the reason I left is because I thought you were going to come and kill us all and take my family away. But instead, he's going to say, you know what? Search my, search my tents and see if you can find any, those idols. It's none of his business to get in there. Laban had no right to him. He is about to allow Laban and his men to go through his house and turn out everything he owns to see if he's been doing anything wrong. Laban has now been set up as a judge over Jacob. God had already demonstrated that Laban had no rights to Jacob. And Jacob should have told Laban to take a hike here. Well, I'm going to take a look through your tents and see. He said, "Uh, no, you're not. You're going to get out of here right now. If God told you not to touch me, then I know I'm in the right. You can get lost. The flesh... The people, the situations that represent your flesh have no right to your life. The devil has no right to your life. And this is the mistake that I've made and that Jacob made here. He is assuming that Laban and he were having a real conversation, that that he was operating in good faith. He thinks, well, if I can prove to him that I didn't steal the idols, everything will be okay. No, that's been 20 years that's been proven that's not the case. So Jacob should have known better than to engage with this sham of of a trial here. Naive people can get taken advantage of this way, where you assume that the people around you are also wanting to work this out in the best of both worlds. And I've been in that situation before, where I assume that this guy and I, we both want to come to a mutual understanding, and I'll give a little, he'll give a little, and and we'll arrive in the center and shake hands. Sometimes that's the case. Sometimes that person is not interested in that. They're interested in getting as much of you as they can, and then they're going to be back later for the rest of it. You know who sets the best example of how to handle yourself in these situations? Jesus Christ. I had to try to pick one example, but I I couldn't. Matthew 21, they said, hey, who gave you the authority to turn over these tables here? Now, Jesus could have said, I'm the Son of God. I'm the Messiah. I'm the second person of the Godhead incarnate, so bow down, buddy. But he knows that that's that's not a real conversation. They, They were not going to submit. They didn't really want to know where his authority came from. They wanted a way to get him out. So what does he say? I'll answer your question if you tell me where John got his authority to baptize. We say, wait a minute. Jesus just dodged the question. Yeah, he did because it wasn't a real question. And they get over there and say, well, if we say that it came from man, then people are going to stone us because they like John. But if we say it came from God, then we're going to look stupid. So they come back and say, we don't know. And then Jesus goes, then I'm not going to tell you where my authority came from. Well, that seems kind of mean. No, it's just wise. Matthew 16, verse 4, they came to him demanding a sign. Jesus said, I'll give you a sign. Here's the sign of Jonah. What does that mean? Well, go read your Bible again and see if you can figure it out. Now, we know what it meant. It means that he's going to be three days in the the earth, like Jonah was three days in the whale, and then come back out. But Jesus is not about to prove himself to these people that wanted him dead. Mark 12, 15, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, first they gussied it up first, right? We know you teach righteously. We know that you would never lie or tell us the wrong thing. So should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus said, why are you trying to trick me? I love that. He just calls him out. Why are you trying to trick me? Jacob should have said, 
You have no right to look through my stuff, Laban. I earned it, and you can't have it. And Jesus said, remember, bring me a denarius. Whose face is on this? Caesar. Render to Caesar that which is Caesar, and render to God that which is God's. So, well, he kind of dodged the question again. Yeah, because it wasn't a real question. Mark 12, they come to him, hey, if a woman has seven husbands and dies and goes to heaven, which one's her husband? And Jesus says, you know what? You don't know the Bible, and you don't know God. He's like, excuse me, I'm a Sadducee, you young whippersnapper. He goes, this is a stupid question. Jesus was not about to be pinned down and let the enemy determine the, the limits of the conversation. John 6, 53, all these people wanting to come and follow Jesus. He goes, you want to follow me? You got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And everybody said, ew. And they said, explain what that means. He says, no. I said, Jesus, why don't you just tell them? He said, because they're over here looking for a free meal. And if I bring all these thousands of people into my church, they're going to cause nothing but trouble because they don't have a true loyalty to me. And there's a million other examples we could give. Matthew 10, 16, Jesus said, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Be innocent, right? Don't do nothing wrong. But don't assume that you can go into a conversation and as soon as my innocence is shown that everything will be fine. It's not how it works with people like this. Hopefully in the church we can be like that with one another and that's the standard we're called to. But you've got to be wise, like a serpent. It's almost an uncomfortable analogy, isn't it? But the serpent was the devil, wasn't he, Jesus? And he's, he's trying to make a point. Be shrewd. Be careful. Know what's really going on. Be able to evaluate the situation and don't be so naive that you're opening yourself to get smacked around again. You've seen this a lot of times where pastors will be interviewed on TV and they set them up with these gotcha questions. I remember I was sitting there with my dad one time and I forget who was being interviewed, but they asked him a very tricky question about whether or not he believed Jesus was God. And this guy started giving this hem-haw answer and he gave what was a technically accurate answer, but he didn't just come out and say yes. And my dad leaned over to me and says, if you ever answer a question like that on TV, you're fired. <laughs> Because he's like, you, you need to be able to see what's really going on here. He, he doesn't want an, a doctrinal discussion with you. He's trying to make you look stupid in front of a bunch of people. And you run into people like this in your life. Don't let the accusations of the flesh set the terms of the discussion. You've got to renounce the world. Renounce your flesh. Renounce abusive people. And don't give them an inch in your life. Don't say, well, come and check out my life and see if there's anything wrong with it. See if I'm hiding anything. It's none of their business. They want to come over there and test Jesus and say, you have no right to test me because you're not righteous. Because look what happens. This is a, kind of a funny part, but I want us to also see how wrong this is too. Verse 33. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and the tent of his two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. They're, they're pretty much all sneaky in this story, aren't they? <laughs> Laban and his men are searching even in his wives' tents. Gentlemen, would you like anybody to go through your wives' stuff? Taking the drawers and turning them out on the floor and feeling around in the house and opening up all the cabinets and seeing what's in there. Would you let anybody do that? That's what's going on here. This is like full-on Gestapo breaking down and searching your house stuff here. This was a mistake, obviously. Now, Rachel, it said, had stolen her father's household gods. Let's talk about this for a minute. This word here is teraphim in Hebrew. 
And it's related to the, the Hebrew word rapha. You can hear it in there, teraphim, the word rapha, which means to heal. Jehovah Rapha is God my healer, right? So if you've ever seen the movie um, Gladiator, and he's got those little tiny idols that he carries around in that patch and he, he worships. That is a great example of what teraphim were. They were small little household idols. You, you kept them in the cabinet in the house. Sometimes they were larger, sometimes they were smaller, but they would be used sometimes in scripture. It talks about them being used for divination, right? Remember Laban said that I've been doing some fortune telling and I found out that the reason I'm blessed is because of Jacob. This, this was related to that. And there also was a sense of um, inheritance attached to this. The family member that had the teraphim, that had the ancestors' idols, was first and foremost in the family. So having these was a, a sign of status. Later on, Zechariah 10, verse 2, would say that the, the teraphim utter nonsense. He says, if you're going to listen to those, those household idols to tell you anything, it's nonsense. So... This was not okay, and Josiah would have to come later, and part of what made his um, reform so special is he actually went into the house and got rid of all the teraphim, it says as well, the household gods. Michael, David's wife, had a household god that she put in the bed and made it look like David was still there so that David could get away, which is interesting that in David's house there was a household god, but that's what's going on. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. There are three reasons that are put forth of why she stole these. Number one, what could be the obvious one, is that this was a religious thing, that she intended to worship these gods. And she usually gets a, a bad rap for that, but I do think there is maybe some other things going on. So it could be, number one, she wanted to keep the gods because she wanted to worship the gods. Number two, this could have just been cultural. She's like, my sons are going to have the family teraphim because they deserve the inheritance that my father has not given them. So you know what? I'm taking these, Dad. So it's like, if I'm leaving, I'm taking all this stuff with me. You know, when you say, when I quit this job, I'm taking that thing with me. Could have been that. And it could have been number three, just spiteful. It could have just been, you know what, Dad? I'm taking your idols. Good luck without them. We'll see how you do without your, your precious teraphim. And you're supposed to look at this and laugh a little bit. Because, remember, this is, this is being written by, by Moses. The story, at least, was compiled by Moses and the later writers. And they're showing us how ridiculous it is to have an idol. Because not only can these gods be stolen... Not only can they be hidden, but Leviticus 15.20 says that when a woman is going through her menstrual impurity, anything she sits on is rendered unclean. So there's a very clear picture here of this, this is what God thinks of false gods here. And I realize that makes us uncomfortable, but there it is in your Bible, and that's why it was put this way. She hides them in the saddle. The saddle, if you're interested, was a big box-like thing. Maybe you've seen these in like old movies. Like They would sit up on these camels to kind of prevent them from swaying and... She sits on it and says, Dad, I can't get up. I'm sorry. And her father doesn't find them. But what do I want to see here? If you let somebody or something else in as a judge in your life, they're going to start to violate your soul. Let me give you an example of this. When the world comes to the church and our value doesn't line up with one of their values, and they come in and they say, this is wrong. You guys should fix this. And then the church opens itself up and says, no, you come in and you look and see if there's anything that we're doing wrong. It's a, it's a danger that the church will do that. Their judgments should mean anything to us. Well, you were born this way. Sometimes family or sometimes friends and neighbors, well, this is how you were born and this is how you were raised and you've got to stick with that. And it's like, I don't recognize that judgment over my life. The way you've always been, all oh, my habits. This is just the way we are. Your family, only Jesus matters. You know what Paul said? 1 Corinthians 4. I love this. This is, this is so tough, the way that Paul writes this. He says, with me, 
it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, and I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. I'm not about to let any ideology come into my life and show me where I'm wrong. I'm not about to let any political group come and put pressure on my church and tell me where we're right or wrong. And I'll tell you guys, last year, I had to put up with some of that. As your shepherd and as your pastor, I was getting a lot of pressure from political organizations and people that were into this kind of stuff, wanting to come and apply these things to the church. And not everybody was happy with me for standing up and saying, only the word of God is our standard for what we do. We're not going to let the world's swinging standards and changes come to us. And you've got two extremes of this going on right now. Let's go ahead and go there. You've got one group that has this, this really godless ideology that is saying, you know what, the, the gospel is oppressive, the church is oppressive, all of Western culture is oppressive, and people have swallowed that because there were so many horrific things that happened last year, and everybody was like, we've got to stand up against racism and all the rest. And here's these people saying, we can teach you how to do that. And so the church lets them into the church and say, would you just look over everything we do and see if it's okay? Now, it starts there. But if you know these people, it doesn't just, it's not just race. It's now we go to male and female. Now we go to gender. Now we go to sex. Now we go to the church itself. Now we get to the word of God. Now we get to how you're allowed to study the word of God. And there are people ringing the bells and telling them to watch out. And they turn around and they do what Laban did and say, well, what, are you racist? They say, well, well no, no. Now we've got to try and prove this over here when the conversation has to be had here. Which is why I kept on saying last year, don't let any group tell you how you have to obey God's word. If we think that something's got to be done here, we open up God's word and we do it his way. Because you know what is happening? Here's the opposite thing that I've been running into lately. You've got some people that are getting fed up with that. So they start going over here. And they say, well, this isn't right. We shouldn't have to do that. And people go, yeah, you know what? It is pro-America. And yeah, it is pro-culture. And you know what? Maybe whites should be on top of everybody else. And you know what? The Bible says that this is okay. And aren't the Jews kind of they, didn't they kill Jesus anyway? And we start letting that into the church. And they started, you'll come in and check out all of our interpretations and see if they line up. You're letting Laban into the tent to rummage through your stuff and see if he lines up with his ideas. We are in trouble as a nation because we have let foxes into the hen house and they're going to rip it apart. I didn't even know if I wanted to talk about that, but it's so true. And this can happen in your life. You've got a friend that's really into some thing. Maybe they're into some Hindu thing and they want to come to your life and say, well, you know, you believe in, in Jesus and, you know, I've learned all this stuff about Hinduism and it set me free from all that. And so you want to come in and appear nice to them and you want to, no, I'm willing to talk. And now you're letting some Hindu come in and evaluate the teachings of Jesus Christ. Or you let some atheist or some scientist come in and rummage through your tents and say, you can't believe that and you can't believe this and you can't believe that. The world has no right to judge what's going on in the church. None. And this is why God gave us structure and why God gave us authority and leadership in the church. What did Paul say? Very small thing that I should be judged by you. So when the world comes at us and says your ideas about sex and gender are unacceptable and you've got to change them immediately, you say, no, we stand on the word of God. You say, fine, we're going to take away your tax-exempt status. We're not going to let you go online anymore. We're going to take away your building. It is a very small thing for me to be judged by you. We need to stand on the word of God. And listen, Christians are free. And we should act like we're free. And you've got to get a little spunk in you about this. You see this in music sometimes. I'll just use music as an example. 
back in the day, like way back in the day, it was, it was jazz and then it was rock and roll and then it was hip hop and I don't know what it is now, but there's always like an edge in music where the people that are like, don't want to be told what to do. They find their outlet in music and they're like, they have these songs where they'll say things that everybody gets shocked and afraid and they're like, I don't care what you say. You don't tell me what to do. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And we hear that and in one sense we're like, well, that's not right. But another part of us goes, I kind of like that attitude. And listen, some of that has got to be incorporated into the church. We can't be trying to be kind and gentle and so nice that we get pushed around by the Labans of the world. Paul had that attitude. Paul's like, you don't scare me, you don't intimidate me, and I don't recognize your authority to evaluate my ministry. That's pretty spunky, you might say, for Paul. The world's going to advance its agenda. The trends are going to swing, and then they're going to swing, and they're going to go back, and they're going to go forth and one day we're going to be so prophetic and on the cutting edge and then the other day we're going to you're so backwards and you must be changed immediately <laughs> you're not changing us that's what jacob should have done should have said laban you're not looking through my stuff well i'm going to come i'm going to fight you you just told me that god said he's on my team so you go ahead and take your own life in your own hands there laban same thing with us god's on your team they're coming for us the lord's like yeah but i'm with you well, we better move on. Verse 36 to 42. Finally, Jacob is going to tell Laban off. I've been waiting for it for like five chapters now. Three chapters, I guess. But Then Jacob became angry. You might want to write in your margins. About time. And berated Laban. I love that word. He berated Laban. All 20 years of angst and anger and frustration are going to come blah, right on to Laban. He said to him, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I've been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried and I've not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was, by day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I've been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, six years for your flock, and you changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Finally... Jacob stands up to his bully. You ever fall down a YouTube hole? You ever see one weird little video, and then there's like a thousand suggested ones, and you've watched like killer whales chase down penguins for two hours or something like that? I fell down a YouTube hole one time of bullies starting fights and getting beaten up by the people they were trying to bully. It is so satisfying. I don't know what it is, some kid getting in his other kid's face and thinks he's going to do something and then swings and then the kid like kind of goes, ah, and punches and then the guy, like, oh, obviously never been hit before and then the kid gets a little courage and, ah, and jumps at him and that's kind of what happens here. Finally, stand up for yourself, Jacob. He gets angry enough and he blows up over all he's done for the last 20 years. You lied about my wives, you changed my wages, you put me under these oppressive contracts where I wasn't going to make anything. And he says, I have been righteous and committed to the Lord. And you know what? He says, if God wasn't with me, you probably wouldn't have given me anything. But lucky for me, God came and rebuked you last night. That's how you handle abusive people. You speak the truth forthrightly. 
You must be willing to do what Jesus did, stand up for yourself, assert what is right, and expose what is wrong. If you know what's really going on, and you do, because you walk away from those conversations, and you get your buddies around you, and you run through all the things that you should have said to that person's face. They're going to come and try to tell me. I know what goes on there. He's going to get mad at me for failing to you know, add up the last dime of my tips. But I know he steals money out of the register every night. And you know what? He shows up late every single day. And I've been late one time and now he's yelling at me. It's like, you should have said all that in the moment rather than let yourself get pushed around. And I struggle with this because I don't like being mean. I don't like hurting feelings. And the thought that comes into my mind is, but if, I'm, if I stand up to this person, Maybe later I'll want to share the gospel with them and they won't want to listen to me. Oh, if that's not a lie that Satan will tell you to keep you pushed down. Does God want you to have the Pharisees and Sadducees and Labans of your life bossing you around? Of course he doesn't. Well, I, I, I won't be able to share the gospel with them. The Lord can handle that. The Lord does not want you to sit there and take it from people that are asserting authority and power that they do not have it's a quick road to being unhappy and bitter and stuck. Because you know what you do? You can't send up to your boss. You can't send up to your neighbor. So you come home and your wife says, hey, honey, how was your day? Get out of my face. And now you're taking all this that should have been aimed over there and you're pouring it out on your family. You're pouring it out on your kids. You're getting angry at yourself. You're getting bitter. You're bitter at the government. You're bitter at your job. You're bitter at your wife. And then it all blows up somewhere. It's going to come out. And the Lord would much rather you go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go than sit there and brood over it. I'm just not good in those kinds of situations. Me neither. So I'm right here with you. Exodus 4, 10 through 12. Moses said to the Lord, My Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Anybody else feel that way? Slow of speech? I feel that way a lot. This is easy for me. Getting down in those one-on-ones can be more tough for me. But the Lord said to him, Who made man's mouth? Who made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Therefore, go and I'll be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. When you go to secure greater godly liberty for your life, the Lord will be with you. This is because your internal battles often manifest themselves outwardly, as I've said You're saying, I want to be bold and be a witness for Jesus. So God's going to bring up this situation where you've been cowardly and say, let's handle this. And this is going to train you. This is physical, actual training. And we sometimes feel like that's not spiritual. Oh, yes, it totally is spiritual. Jacob needed to learn not to be a sneak and a thief, so God sent him to Laban. He also needed to learn to stand up to people like his mother, who tried to pressure him into doing terrible things. And says, okay, I'm I'm going to send you this guy. And you're going to practice with Laban. Same thing for you, a situation that you're in. Say, God, I want to be righteous, I want to be holy. Then God goes, and I need you to handle this here. Let's go over there and deal with that. So God, oh, make me, make me brave. God goes, this is how I'm going to make you brave, by putting you in this situation. You ever have a decision that you don't even want to think about because you know what you're supposed to do, and if you start thinking about what you're supposed to do, you're going to feel like you have to do it, and you're terrified of it? I've been there where I know what I'm supposed to do, so I don't want to think about it because then I'm going to have to do it. This is what God wants us to do. The battle against self is never just internal. You've got to let it be brought outside. Internally, you might have everything all squared away. You know, you might be really good at handling all of these conversations in your mind, but the Lord wants you to learn how to take them outside and handle the person that's actually bringing trouble to your family, the person who's actually causing your kids to be afraid or whatever it is. Are you willing to act in righteousness even against scary people? 
We've got to learn how to do that. Verse 43, and then Laban learned his lesson, right? That's what, that's what happened. <laughs> Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. Piece of work, this guy. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they've born? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. He didn't learn his lesson. He tries to claim again what is not his. But now Jacob has said no. And guess what? The monster has no teeth and has no claws. That's always, not always, that's usually how it goes, I have found. You stand up and you assert yourself and you plant your feet and you say no. And, oh, okay, they listened. Turns out it's not much fun dealing with somebody that's got their feet planted. But Laban refuses to admit he's wrong, and most abusive people will not admit that they're wrong. Most fleshly situations, most worldly ideas, you know, you're not going to have a nice conversation with some, some radical religious or atheist person about doctrine, and they're not going to say, oh, yeah, you're right. No, they're going to pivot the conversation and talk about something else. So it's better to leave it behind. You're never going to reform your flesh, and it's going to take as much as you can get until you kill it. These are my kids. You're taking them away from me. Jacob's like, no, those are my wives, and those are my kids, and those are my flocks. I earned them, and you can go back to your house while I go back to my family. And you say, well, that seems kind of stern and, and not very Christ-like. It is Christ-like. Didn't you just see what Jesus said to these people? You whitewashed tombs. Oh, I would never say that. Why not? Why not? Think about that. That Jesus was the embodiment of God and the example of what a Christian should be. Now, if you're hearing that and going, all right, yeah, I got some people I want to berate, <laughs> then maybe you need to pray about something else. But for most of us, including myself, I think we can learn to be a little more forthright. Always a good thing. Well, verse 45, coming to the end now. Long passage. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap. And they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Yegar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galeed. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galeed, which means heap of witness, and Mizpah, which means watchtower. For he said, The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar which I have set between you. Go back. Who raised up the heap and the pillar? Do you see it? Back in verse 45 and 46, Jacob. Jacob raised up the pillar. Jacob had his kinsmen to set it up. And here he comes. Now see this thing that I have made. That's, that's who this guy was, man. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to do me harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. So they make a covenant. This is not a nice covenant. This is a, you stay on that side of the line, I'll stay on this side of the line, and that way we don't have to fight anymore. So <laughs> I think it's verse, verse uh, 44 that like I've seen this for sale at like Lifeway, where it's like, come, let us make a covenant between you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. It's nice to have covenants with people, but this story is not, not a nice kind of covenant. 
This is more like in, in the movies where they put a piece of tape down the line and like, that's your side and that's my side and I'm not coming over there. And it's not a nice thing. Jacob uses the Hebrew name. Laban uses the Aramaic name, once again, emphasizing their differences. Later on, this is important, the Syrian nation and the Israelite nation will dispute this boundary right here. So it's important that we know where this stone is because they're going to have wars later on over who actually owns this spot. Isn't that just about appropriate based on what we know of this relationship? Laban claims credit for the pillar and the heap. He swears by his gods, your flesh will never learn. Sometimes there are people in your life, they're not going to change, and it's best to move on. Jacob affirms his loyalty. I love this title he gives to God, the fear of Isaac. Showing how much he's changed, right? No longer is he the, the liar and the sneak that was willing to use the name of God in vain to get an extra inheritance. Now he's building altars and he's swearing by the name of the Lord. There has to be a line in the sand, you and your sin going opposite ways. Luke 14.33 says, Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It does not matter if you do it the best way possible. Will you hear me on that? Well, I want to I get out of this bad situation, but I'm afraid that if I, I do it, I might get angry or I might hurt someone's feelings or, or I might do something wrong. Do it anyway. Jacob just left and it was the best thing. Sometimes you're in a mess that is so messy. It's like, just get out of the mess. And we'll clean up any smaller messes that are made along the way. Sometimes we're so afraid to make a tiny mistake that we won't fix the big mistake. I'm too afraid to make my wife cry, so I'm not going to address this big issue that we're having. Or I'm, I'm too afraid to make my mom angry or my dad's going to yell at me, but we've really got to get this problem addressed. Let God handle the rest. And God, God is, is not going to get angry at you for trying to do the right thing and slipping up and making mistakes along the way. Verse 55, early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. And that's the last we'll see of that guy. And all God's people said, good riddance. <laughs> Jacob has learned along this journey that he cannot be the way he was anymore. He finally stood up to his flesh and went the other way and was willing to engage and say no to himself. God is on your side your enemies cannot hurt you, so don't be afraid to leave them behind. Don't be afraid to resist outside pressure because the world's always putting pressure on you. And sometimes it's small. Somebody that w wants to be telling you how to run your house and how to raise your kids who has no business telling you that. Sometimes it can be bigger where there are cultural forces coming into the church like in, in the Third Reich when the Nazi party started telling the church what it could and couldn't preach. Big range of difference, but it's the same solution. You stand up firmly on the word of God, and you say no. No person, no habit, no idea, no demon has any hold over you. That's another thing abusive Christians will say to other Christians. You stand up and you say, I don't like the way you're treating me, and this is going to stop. Well, you've just got a demon in you who's rebellious. Somebody who accuses you of being possessed is probably the kind of person you need to avoid. Don't let them get into your life and start rummaging through your stuff. I like this story because on one level, there's a very spiritual thing. On the other side, very practical. No, you can't do that. Nice, well-intentioned Christians get pushed around by the Labans in their lives, and we've got to learn to stand up to them because God has set you free. And Galatians 5 says, don't submit to a yoke of slavery anymore. He wants you to be free of sin and free from oppression no matter how small. So renounce it and trust that God's going to lead you out even if you have a few bumps along the way.